And that's where, in particular, this one person came by and said, ah, you gave it a great try. We're so proud of you. And I was like, fuck off. And I pulled every department together in a way that I had never seen it happen at, at A&E at that point. But I was like, what's the repeat plan? I need to know what the repeat plan I want to know what you're doing for press this week. I want to know what's going on with marketing. I want to understand how we're doing this. So many people were supportive of the show and it was like a team of people who believed in something so much that they willed it to get better. Welcome friends to Exec Producer. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Every episode of Exec Producer offers a deep dive into one of your favorite shows from the point of view of both the producer who dreamt it up and the executive who championed it. Where the idea came from, the hurdles they faced in selling it, and ultimately, how it made it to air and into popular culture. I've worked as an executive at four separate networks, and I've produced and overseen hundreds of hours of television. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I hope to share some of that wisdom with you. So settle in, turn it up, and enjoy. And please also remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. So with that, thank you again and enjoy the show. Here we are, Glendale campus of Buna Murray Productions, uh, the one and only John Murray and the other one and only Drew Tappan, two really incredible, incredible men, uh, executives, producers. John was my first boss in this industry. And as you know, uh, somebody I've always considered a mentor add me to the list of many other people who probably consider John a mentor, but I'm very fortunate to have been John's assistant and to have been the voice on his voicemail for many years, uh, from what I understand. And uh, Drew Tappan on my left was the very first executive I ever knew when I was working for John and Mary Ellis at the time. He oversaw all of our real world and road rules and challenge shows and not to embarrass him, but he was the first person outside of Buna Murray that was ever nice to me in this business. The first, <laughs> the first executive that took me to a meal and... <laughs> what a miserable business. No one's nice to Noah. Tried to get me to run for the hills. Um, so these two gentlemen obviously have a longstanding history, but the show we're here to talk about today is not the real world. It's not anything from those MTV years. It's about a show that brought them together years later on A&E when Drew was an executive there, a show called Born This Way. It's a remarkable show, and it won the Emmy, um, but it's, it's, it's like nothing else that's on television today, and it has a very fascinating sort of origin story because it took many years to get off the ground. So with that, let's throw it to John Murray for the light bulb about Born This Way. You know, going back to the beginning of the real world, I think this company has always been interested in um, diverse voices, in using television as a vehicle to 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 bring people who normally aren't seen. Um, so when I saw in Europe there was a show that uh, was on the air about uh, a group of people who had Down syndrome and were, were put in a house together to live. I said, first of all, I said, you know, that's the real world, except with people who have, who have Down syndrome. Um, but anyway, but I optioned it, and um, it was developed by someone whose sister had Down syndrome. And so we did a pilot for A&E, and um, uh, it was good, um, but ultimately they didn't pick it up. So it, it originally started with, with you know, uh, the interest in this, particularly of people with Down syndrome, with, with that. But ultimately, that's not what Born This Way became years later. 
So you option this project, and it's a real-world but, and I'm sure there's probably been a hundred real-world buts that have made it to air, including one that you're working on these days, Drew. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but many successful shows obviously have followed that formula. But so then did you use the footage from that pilot to sell it? I mean, most of the buyers here probably didn't know about that project. I, I mean, going back to this original version. Yeah, we, we, we used some footage from, um, from that one, and they had also optioned it to, uh, to I think, um, Channel 4 in the UK, and we got some footage from them. And so we uh, pitched it to uh, Rob Chernow at... Uh, at A&E using that footage and also the ratings from from the original country where it was in. I mean, that's the main reason a lot of times you buy a format is if it's proven successful somewhere, it gives a network a little more comfort in picking up something, especially something like this that was not sort of, it, it was not the typical show they would pick up. So I think that that got us more in the door. And um, they were, Rob was immediately intrigued with the show and he bought it. And, uh, you know, like I say, we did the pilot, um, ultimately didn't get picked up. Um, but that's not unusual. A lot of shows don't get picked up. Sure. Do, do you remember that pitch process? Did any other places make offers or was A&E really the one true home, the, the right home for, for the show? Um. I don't think we talked to anybody else. I think it was um, we went to A and E because we felt they were the right place. I had a good relationship with Rob Chernow. Also, um, the executive initially was he's an agent now, Scott Lonker, mm-hmm. um, and uh, um, yeah, it just it just felt like the right place. And I knew that there was some interest in doing something a little different. Uh, I remember the room. It's so interesting. I, of all the times we've sold shows, I always remember the room very clearly. I remember where Rob was sitting. I remember Scott was sitting, where I was sitting. It's, it's so, so wacky. So they pass on the project. You lick your wounds and you move on. Did you think about the show for many, many oh, years? Right. We went and tried to sell it to everybody else in, in every other network and everybody else, you know, said no. Um, they, they were afraid of it. They just said their viewers wouldn't watch. That they, they just didn't think viewers would watch this show. Gotcha. So many years pass and... Ring, 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 ring. <laughs> My phone rings. One of the best calls I've ever gotten. And it's Drew. And Drew says, hey, remember that pilot you did? Well, you know, the, and Annie had just been through the success of Duck Dynasty and tried to create shows which sort of copied Duck Dynasty, nothing was working, and they apparently had some some meeting, and Drew can probably tell it better than I can, because he was probably in the meeting. Well, we had a situation where we were going back, and we knew that the direction we were going in wasn't quite right. And, you, you know, when Friends was popular, and there were a million Friends reboots everywhere, we realized that we had gone down this comedy, this kind of produced comedy path in a different way, and it wasn't working for us. And from going from the highs of Duck Dynasty in its heyday, that was really challenging, kind of chasing that. And we were kind of charged with like, think hard, what's a totally different direction, go back into the coffers. And this is a project that for a lot of people at the network was always a painful one that it went away because we loved, we loved what it stood for. We loved the way it was executed. And I think, again, so much goes to knowing that John was behind it. So this wasn't some like, oh, it's something he'll be involved in here and there. It was a real passion project for him. So 
we went back and said, would you be interested in redeveloping this and coming up with a different take? Because the way that it was done in that previous iteration was, you know, some women living in a house, some men living in a house and kind of that interaction. And we didn't think that that it, we didn't it was contrived. It, it was that contrived. And you had just work. come out of a lot of <laughs> contrived shows that were trying yeah. to be comedy, reality, contrived shows. Right. Yeah. So because we didn't have a situation where there were people who were living in these sort of halfway houses or assisted living, we went back and we looked at casting, trying to find people who had somewhat of a bond to each other, but that weren't necessarily going to move into a house together right away. So... Yeah, and what was great was, you know, we focused on, we ended up discovering that there was a very tight community of families with children who had Down syndrome um, in the Orange County area. And so we sort of zeroed in on that. And ultimately, as we cast the show, a lot of our cast knew each other. They were already in classes together or different uh, activities together. So it, it it was real. It, it wasn't. It wasn't contrived. We didn't have to contrive something. And I think jumping a little bit ahead, you know, obviously Buna Murray, the casting here is is impeccable. And from an executive position, I was so excited because this was a super shorthand that I had with them. And we went through and had the cast together, and this one's connected to this one, and it's so great. And it always felt really good, but it didn't feel like oh my God, there was always something that was kind of like, this is really good. And then Laura Kikorian, who was show running the project, spearheading the project from here, said, I have a Christmas present for you. And she sent me a tape of Megan and her mom who were living in Boulder at the time, but were looking to relocate. And that solidified every like TV trope in my mind of like having the eyes in, because how do we just jump into this group of people who know each other, but they don't have that. They already have a shorthand. You don't have to figure that out. Suddenly we had a way of this lovely young lady and her lovely mother kind of coming in and infiltrating this group so we could have that felicity moment of like, it's all through their eyes at first. So it also uh, it also reminded me of Julie from the first Real World New York. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. she came in from Birmingham touchstone. into New York. I believe you yeah, call it touchstone. a touchstone. Girl next door, touchstone. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is in that casting process, you know, we initially started, we were interviewing these young adults, probably 23 to 33. And we also said, well, let's talk to their, their parents too or their families. And we discovered that the apple does not fall far from the tree because these parents were as just mesmerizing and charismatic as these potential cast members. So we actually, which I think is partly why the show has been a success, is ultimately we ended up with a show that had two ways in for the viewer. We had the way in from our young people, but then very importantly for A&E, which is a you know, 25 to 54 demo network, we had the parents' point of view too. And I think for a lot of the A&E audience, that parent point of view is the same point of view that they have. And whether your child has Down syndrome or doesn't have Down syndrome, there is so much you can relate to, to this idea of your children wanting their independence. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I talk about that a lot with people and certainly in shows that I've developed, you have to have numerous ways in because if you only have one, especially in this climate, in this market, you're going to lose. Yeah. I think that made all the difference because I think if it had just been 
what we had done originally when it was just through the, even originally, honestly though, even originally we had such rich stories that were coming from the parents, but it still was through the eyes of the cast, the the younger cast. This, this cast, I, I'm looking at the poster of them, the parents should be on there because they were as important. They were as important to the storytelling. And like John said, whether you have a child with Down syndrome or not, like you can relate or you have a sibling with a disability or you have a friend. It, 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 it in the same way that it, that the real world affected me as a younger person, that I didn't know someone with HIV until I saw Pedro on TV. I felt like this gave people the chance. I think a lot of people knew someone with Down syndrome, but didn't even know what to ask or what what the right way to behave was. I think it helped a lot of people. And I have to say that for young kids who watch this show, and I'm talking kids my age who are eight now, they're fascinated. And it comes through them now when they meet someone with any sort of a disability. They're like, hi, you know, I'm this person. What's your, what's your name? They're much more comfortable reaching out. And it, that's, that's what is magical about when TV does that. Because it doesn't do it a lot. No, it does not do it a lot. <laughs> um, so, okay, okay, stepping back for a second, you're talking to Laura, you, you know, you're developing this thing. I mean, even further back than that, that was, was it hard to get money against it, even from day one? Or, or was everyone at A&E pretty enthused about it, you know, about trying again? Um, so for the record, I'm not at A&E now. Sure. So I can say that, and I can say I'm not speaking for the network when I say this. Um. I'd say we had a great groundswell of support. And again, Rob had just come back to A&E. He had left A&E for a while, and then he came back and, and was re-spearheading the group. Elaine was very fond of the original project also, Elaine Fontaine Bryant. Um, and there were a lot of people in that building who were like, mm, it's just not going to work, but good, you know, good for you. You can try it. Right. But the people that mattered were the ones who released the money and said, let's do it. And I will say again that John's reputation is the reason that we got that through. And, and John's relationship with, with Rob Chernow is the reason that it got through. So if we had been dealing with someone who didn't know John personally, I don't know. I don't know. I, I hate to think about it, but um, and then and, and then it did come to a situation where it was like, okay, how's the budget? Well, we'll only do this many episodes. You know, there was a lot of fighting about that because we wanted to give the show the time to really be able to tell the story. But at the end of the day, it's a business, and it's like, well, we only have this many weeks, and you're going to have to get it done this time and this much money. So right, and we knew that uh, from our experience the first time through that this isn't. This couldn't be the kind of show where you say, okay, we're going to shoot each episode over three days and we're going to do a lot of sort of staging and manipulating because our our cast, that's not what they do. They, they are very much in the moment. They are who they are. And I remember when we were shooting the original pilot, um, you know, Laura asked one of the cast members to like get out of bed again. And she was saying, why would I do that? I'm already up. So she just 
there's no producing yeah. in quotations these these this cast. So we knew we needed to have a longer production period, and we also needed a longer production periods because so much they have very strong routines. So we needed a longer production period so that m- more would happen, so we would have more story. So we ultimately developed the plan to have much smaller crews than we normally have, but to shoot over you know. 18, 20 weeks, which is very unusual today for a series. Yeah. Uh, most series are being shot over seven or eight weeks. Mm-hmm. Or four. <laughs> or four, as I can attest to right now. So Right. So 18, 20 weeks. And, and I believe the first season order was for, for six, right? right. So really, It was six. It was six for the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Really, right. So everyone wants to do the show. You know, everyone feels good about this show, but they're not exactly, you know, handing over the keys to the car. No, no. And and again, I think, look, you, you can look back with, with perfect vision, I guess, but I remember being so frustrated and so insulted because when the first thing started coming through and, you know, the stuff that comes out of this office is exceptional. There's no doubt about it. And this was this was not an exception to that rule. And as I was bringing it around and showing people, they're like, oh, it's really good. I'm like, yeah, it's really good. <laughs> like, I, we weren't doing this as a public service announcement. Do you know what I mean? Like, we wanted to make an entertaining, compelling television show. And more and more people, we would gather together. We would do these meetings with, you know, the heads of departments to get them on board. And you could see them like, Oh, and there were some people that were still scared because, you know, are we being, are we exploiting? What are we doing? And and there was no question that that was not the case in this situation. But it still came down to, and I have names and I won't name them, but there were a few people at that company who were like, oh, aren't you sweet? Aren't you sweet? Well, I'm glad you have this passion project and good for you. Right. And um, no, and I think even internally at Buna Murray, there were people. We were doing another project at the same time called Fix My Mom for Oxygen. And I would say all the bets were on that Fix My Mom was going to be a huge success. And, you know, Born This Way was, oh, it's uh, John Murray. He's, you know, doing one of those projects again where he wants to, like, help the world. (laughs) So, Um, God bless his heart. But again, as people started to see the actual show come together, there was a, wow, this is really interesting. And even I, you know, I've gotten to the point now where I have to protect myself emotionally. So I certainly, I was excited about the opportunity to make this show. Um, But I didn't, if I really am honest, think that it would be a big hit or a big success or that we'd be shooting our fourth season. I mean, still, still shooting now. So do you know what I mean? Amazing. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about those expectations they were measured, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, but I do. I go to everything measured because I've had too many times where, <laughs> where, where I've looked at the ratings next the next day and they're like practically hash marks. So right, right. you have to do that to protect your ego because, and just protect yourself emotionally because you can get caught up in the hype. And every time I've been caught up in the hype, I've always crashed and burned. Yeah, I think I didn't protect myself no you were much more i was very very passionate about it and i felt like at that stage in my career also i'm like this this has to work no you were at an interesting place because i feel like you had been at a and e for a couple well i had been there right as the original because when i came on board right 
I had been involved in that original. You, came, piece, you so. took it over. I took over from Jordy. Yeah, right. And 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 you had. I mean, you weren't having immediate success there. Oh no, and no. It, I had been. I had been successful, and then everything had fallen apart. Right. To be really honest. So I kind of had. I had an. You were like waiting for someone to come to your office and say, you know, Drew. Hey, you're a nice guy, but we'll see you soon. <laughs> and and this was one of two projects that I just was like, uh-uh. Uh-uh. This is not gonna. This is not gonna go down the way these this these people in my head are gonna let it be, and and if I'm being really honest, I think we were hurt with that first week. I think that first week's numbers were soft, and and that's where, in particular, this one person came by and said, "Ah, you gave it a great try. We're so proud of you." And I was like, "Fuck off!" And I pulled every department together. It was like a spiteful thing, but it was also like I was so proud of the show. I pulled every department together in a way that I had never seen it happen at at A and E at that point, and 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 everyone had been great about it. Don't get me wrong; it's not like anyone wasn't doing their job. But I was like, "What's the repeat plan? I need to know what the repeat plan. I want to know what you're doing for press this week. I want to know what's going on with marketing. I want to understand how we're doing this." And so many people became comp. It's not fair to say that so many people were supportive of the show from smaller not the top positions that it rose up and it got this weird weird groundswell of support and it was like a team of people who believed in something so much that they willed it to get better and it just doesn't happen now it doesn't happen like you get a shot i had a show pulled off mtv after one episode with with, with very little marketing it was like but what happened you got to give it time not anymore you don't yeah, I mean, we went into this knowing that I took the show to the first episode to Washington and worked with a, a woman there, Jennifer uh, Mizrahi, who runs a comp- an organization called Respectability. It's a nonprofit that focuses on uh, disability and, and disability rights. And she helped gather a whole bunch of people from different disability organizations who we screened it for them, for some members of Congress, and then we sort of worked with them to use their social media to help support the launch of the show because we knew that, you know, if we could at least bring in, you know, two hundred to 300,000 people who were invested in this area of, wow, we're, we're finally having our story told, that would help with the numbers because I don't think... I wasn't confident in A&E's marketing because they're generally just going to do marketing on air and it's going to be to their viewers. So, and what was really exciting about, you know, ultimately the show went on the air, premiered a little soft, not disaster. No, not a disaster. But a little soft. And then the next week it went up. And it's so unusual where usually I'm like the person on the phone to the network, like pleading for more repeats and all this. But I had this partner in Drew at the network who was already there, who was already so invested and doing it anyway. Um, And, um, you know, and so what's sort of amazing is the show rose 84% in the ratings over those six episodes. That's practically unheard of. I don't think any other show has ever done that. And a sizable part of the audience had never watched A&E before. So we did bring in new viewers to the network. So those two things meant a lot to like the bean counters at at A&E. And um, I think by the fourth episode, you guys renewed it for a new season. Which again, was the greatest gift, so. Which is important because I still think that when a network 
renews a show early, it says to those viewers that this show is going to be around. Yeah, it's stick worth, around. It's worth getting emotionally invested yep. in this story because we're going to be back. Because I think a lot of times viewers have so many choices, and if if you if you and and viewers are more sophisticated than you think, they look at the ratings, yep. and if they think, oh, that show's not going to be around, well, maybe I won't bother to finish watching it. Mm-hmm. So I do that now. If I hear a show isn't picked up on Netflix again, I'm like, well, I'm not going to bother myself with this one season. I'm like, yeah, the first season of a show has become in in many many ways the pilot, right? And People want this critical mass of episodes to binge through. There's there's something else we should talk about is sort of this... We were so... I think one of the things both Drew and I and, and Laura, all of us were concerned about, was potential barriers to people watching this show. Right. Um, would it Was it exploitive? Is it something I want to watch? Is it going to be sad? Am I going to be uncomfortable? And so... That first episode, so much thought went into how we edited it. And I think we probably looked at probably 15 or 16 different cold opens for the show. We needed that perfect scene that would say to the viewers, oh, my God, this is fun. Oh, my God, this is so relatable. Oh, this isn't hard work to watch this. I'm liking this. And I will never forget showing that first episode just to our internal programming development group, I remember Evan Lerner, who is still at A&E. Evan Lerner pulled me aside. And you know, it's always hard when you share something you're really proud of. You know, you're kind of like, you're, you're, expo- you're exposing yourself, yeah. exactly. And he came to me and I was like, oh boy, this is gonna be, and he's like, wow, I really, I really, really love this. He goes, can I give you a note? And I'm like, I guess so. But his note was, start with something funny. So that I feel I feel okay. And we ended up putting that dating kind of right. at the bar scene. We put Sean and Steven, and Steven at the bar trying to... It's something we just happened to catch. We're try, trying to sort of... Discussing a woman who was sitting next to them. Yeah. And whether she was available. Right. Does she have a boyfriend? Exactly. She has a boyfriend. Exactly. And then finally they talk to her and they find out that she's actually... With her husband or her boyfriend or something who's with her. And they both look at each other and go, awkward. Exactly, exactly. And you're like, okay, it's the permission to laugh. You, it's They're not presenting themselves like, what do you think of me? It's They're just the relatability. And and honestly, that helps set the tone for what we did for the whole the whole show, I think. And like, obviously, there's some stories that got more serious and took on heavier stuff. But like... Boy, how proud are you when you get to work on a show that your parents can say they watched? You know what I mean, and like, and that your kids can watch. It's just, it's amazing. Some other things that we, uh, you know, when we, because we did do a lot on that first episode in terms of we had, I think, uh, too many bites where we were letting the parents tell the story, and we really felt it was important to put the power in our young people. And, and not have other people speak for them. So it was sort of, there was like a test for each bite. Yeah. Did, did that bite need to be there from the parent? Was it, or, or should it be there because it's giving us something that, um, you know, their perspective. But we don't need them to explain, you know, some aspect of, of this young person's life. Right, and it, well, it goes right to these young people wanting independence. Right, yeah. and wanting to have their own voices. So why they don't have to have their parents speak for them all the time. Right. And the other thing is, 
They're all over 21. So that was the other thing nice about that first scene is you saw Sean and Stephen having a drink. Yeah. They were having a beer. Right. And that immediately said to viewers, oh, they can drink alcohol. Uh They're not children because we also didn't want to ever infantilize them. Mm -hmm. We didn't want to make it seem like they're children because they're not children. Well, and that actually, you know, brings up an interesting point. You know, in handling them, I mean, from everything, from, you know, the contracts they have to sign or just the way that Laura, as a producer, had to deal with them. I mean, did you have to approach it? I mean, how did you approach it differently than treating any other adult? Well, we knew going into it, and we had learned a lot about this when we were doing the pilot. Um, And we had spent a lot of time talking. We had had these consultants at New Horizons, which is a local nonprofit that focuses on people with intellectual um, disability. And um, so, yeah, we thought a lot about, you know, can they enter into this contract? You know, um, how do we make sure we're not exploiting them? So, um, so yeah, the whole families were involved in the contract. And, and we actually, um, you know, it was important to us that they had some kind of representation, either a lawyer or an agent or someone who's going to negotiate their contract. Um, uh, and then, you know, we felt it was important that uh, for the first season we have someone on the set who was an advocate for them, who was separate from the production, who would let us know if there was anything we were doing that would be potentially harmful. Though I think, you know, again, uh, Laura and the team did such a good job of educating themselves that we really didn't have any issues. The other thing is I think it was, you know, going back to A&E, I think it was really important that they had confidence in the production and the team putting this together because ultimately, you know, if we do something that's not good, they're going to get the black eye as much as us. Yeah, I mean, speaking about A&E and all these people are so surprised that the show was this way or how good it was or, you know, this, that, the other, what did you think the expectations were as far as tonally? You know, what sort of show did people think you were making? well, because it's not hard hitting like intervention, and it's well, it's not constructed right. comedy like Duck Dynasty. But I think they, th- I honestly, I think they thought it might be sad. I thought I think they thought it might be just sad in general, and the show never has taken a sad tone. There have been stories that have been more emotional, but it's never taken a sad tone. And I think that mistakenly, and you could ask anyone this, I think probably like, oh, you're going to do a show about cancer, like. Oh, that's really that's heavy. That's not the same thing. And I think I think people what I hope people are learning now is that, you know, the diagnosis of a of an unborn child with Down syndrome is not some sort of death sentence. But I think that a lot of people thought that it was. And I think that a lot of people who were not on the inside of having a conversation about the development of it are like, You're doing a show about people with Down syndrome? Are you crazy? I thought when 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 Elaine asked me to step in on the pilot, I'm like, "What do you mean? Like, what's the show? You've got to be, you know." It was not. It wasn't out there. It was different, which I think is why it works so well for A and E because they're always trying to find those different voices and the different approaches to things you think you know about. So, well, the tide clearly turned. The show became a hit. You know, you went from this patronizing sort of office visit in week one to renewed in week four, which is really remarkable. And and then it won an Emmy. So then it got nominated for an Emmy first. That was the first shock of everything. I think I was on the phone with somebody and our head of press came up and high-fived me while I was on the phone. And I'm like, why are you high-fiving me? 
And he's like, the Emmy, the Emmy nominations just came out. And I was like, and Wahlburgers got a nomination, you know, because that had been in that category. Exactly. That had been part of our thing. I'm like, okay. And he goes, yeah, born this way. And I, I truly, I truly thought he was fucking with me because I didn't, you know, it wasn't like I didn't think it was a great show, but I, it's hard for a first season show to get that kind of awareness or notice. And, oh, I burst into tears. I burst into tears. And then we marched down the hall to tell Paul Buccieri, who was sitting at his computer, frantically like scrolling through to see how many nominations the networks had gotten. So, Okay, so amazing. and then l- let's talk a little bit about that night. Because anyone who's seen the video, <laughs> I dare you not to get emotional, <laughs> right? As we look at the picture of that night, I mean, talk about keeping expectations at sort of a, you know, a, a realistic point. I did have a speech. Oh, yeah. And I wore my Born This Way socks. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But also, I think you also had a speech for the parents because, again, here are these young people who truly do not have limits on them. They don't They don't have the same limits. Like, you and I would go in somewhere and be like, oh, we're probably not going to win an Emmy on this, but whatever. They're like, oh, we're going to win the Emmy. And we're like, all right. <laughs> yeah, we might win the Emmy. We have a one in five chance, but there's a good chance we won't get it. So we just have to be happy that we're here. And they're like, we're dressed up. We're at the Emmys. We're winning an Emmy. <laughs> and, and I truly believe that that sort of thinking manifests itself in a weird way not like the secret spiritual and i again protecting myself i had sat in that auditorium i think at least eight or nine times being nominated for project runway and never winning right so i am so used to not hearing my name i'm so used to still applauding and smiling and knowing cameras are on you waving hello to whoever has won um so, you know, uh, so it was sort of amazing when they said born this way. It was sort of we all sort of looked at each other. And then, you know, I remember I got up. I started walking down the aisle. I stopped waiting for people. And then others, the cast was getting up. I got to the stage. Some of us were other cast members. Somebody lost a shoe. Rachel, Rachel <laughs> lost her shoe on the way. Yeah, uh, like and we were gradually making. I started to talk a little bit because I knew you only get 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And so I started to talk a little, but then I stopped and waited. And then Ellen is looking up at me, and she's so excited. And um, and the audience stands. And oh, and I, as I'm walking up, I go right by Heidi Klum and Tim Gunn, and they're both giving me big hugs. And and you know, and I get up on stage, and it's you know, the audience gets to their feet. And it was the first time that night that there was any standing ovation and we were at the end we were late. yeah we were late in the show yeah we were the second, second or the last category yeah. and it was just sort of amazing and i think you know and i i got the speech out and thank god it was written down yeah. i really do think it's smart to write your speech down and thank god the, gr- the kids didn't try to take the microphone from you because that was a <laughs> right a real possibility right also. right and uh and uh yeah it was it was truly just an the the, the joy in that auditorium and and the smiles coming from the people in the audience it was the emotional highlight of the evening and um you know and then we went backstage with everybody and we were running into ryan seacrest and all these people and everybody was so happy for us yeah uh it was just it's rare that much goodwill 
happens at an award show. Do you know what I mean? People like, are not that excited when The Voice wins again. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, great, congratulations, nicely done. Well, it was amazing to see the kids and for the kids to get that chance to go up there. Too. And just when we say kids, we've, we've called the cast members of TV shows ever since The Real exactly. World kids. Yeah. And so even though you're 30-something, yeah. you're still called a kid. And by the way, you're still a kid to me then, too. <laughs> by the way, I will always be much older than you, so... Um, but well, I'm getting chills just even hearing. Oh, I get a little emotional hearing that too. Yeah. And then to be able to see it, to see it again, you know, when they aired it then. And then know. I was so amazed. Like I was talking to Elaine, and Elaine had never won an Emmy before. She was so excited, Elaine from the network, and just just uh, yeah, it was like, and it was your first Emmy. It was my first Emmy. It yeah. was it was, it was the first Emmy. It was Laura's so. first Emmy. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think you're being modest because I would imagine, well, yes, the show and the content of the show were. A major reason why people got on their feet. John, you created the genre and you have so many people who, you yes, know, I agree. who look up to you and you've this mentored. Was, this was a, this was a, a, an aggregate, I think, on some level too. An aggregate. Yeah, because real world, there was no category for the show sure, in sure. the Emmys when it first went on the air. And unfortunately, generally Emmys go to new things. And so the real world never really got its acknowledgement, at least from 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 the TV Academy. So it was, and I think in my speech that night, I mentioned that fact that this is also for yes. all those folks who yep. came up with us on the real world. Mm-hmm. Well, because I, I think we well, learned our craft there. <laughs> I think it speaks to why you initially took this flyer on the show and everything that you've described and just, oh, because it was Buna Murray, you know, because it was John, because everything you did, Drew, you know, to pat you on the back here and and you weren't going to let this one die. I mean, this is what it takes, you know, despite all the odds. I mean, it's yeah, not typically Yeah, and it really takes, um, to... and it was such a pleasure because, you know, Drew was such an advocate at the network. I mean, and and I, I miss that on so many shows is that I don't feel like we have someone at the network who's really in there fighting for the show, who passionately demands that the network pay attention to this show. And I think that means a lot. If you're too many, unfortunately, I don't know whether it's fear or whether it's playing the odds or what they're doing. So many of our network execs just aren't willing to go to battle for your show. I think it's fear. I think it's fear. You've been there. Do you know what I mean? Like there, and it's not about not having the passion for the show. Sometimes it's about, what mood your boss is in or what mood the ha- the decision maker is in at that point and how far do you push it knowing that you have three other things that you have to get through also like it does become you're right it does become an odds thing on some level which is a shame and i think no one would ever admit to that because you don't get into this business to be playing the odds like well five of these will work but the rest of them won't you know you don't do that no and that's my fear now is that there is playing the odds in the sense of the networks are overdeveloping they'll develop so many projects with the idea that maybe only two will make it to air yeah. and you know a show like born this way could have easily been part of a lot of projects that are developed but then not make the air yeah yeah i think you know speaking from my time as a producer when you do make a sale you just have infinite hope that it's going to be the one you know even though i've spent so many years at the networks and i know i know full well that that's not the case you still want to believe but you go through this journey with another executive feeling and and hoping that they're as invested as you are but i think to your point john they probably aren't it's tough because they have to go into a room with all those other people who well if drew's show gets on the air then mine doesn't yeah there is some of that undercutting and it's never 
Yeah, it is sometimes. I, I don't guess. think it's in. T- you know, I just think it's the nature of the way it's done. It's right. Unfortunately, it's yeah. not a healthy way to make shows. And the decision making now tends to be in the hands of a very, very small number of people. It used to be like, what do we think as a group? Like, what do we put forward? What do we say? And now, you know, in certain cases, it comes down to one person. You know, which is a tricky, a tricky decision making process, and not a pressure I would want. I would not want that. I would not want that pressure. I remember when I worked for, when I started to work for Elaine, there's so many wonderful things to say about Elaine, but Elaine's, one of her greatest strengths, I thought, was having 10 amazing projects in front of her. She'd instantly be like, that's the one. She could really have a sense of like, that's going to resonate with our audience in a way. And I'm like, but what about this one and this one and this one? And she'd be like, those are all good, but this is the one. And I never had that ability because I kind of loved all the kids the same. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, they're all really good and they could all do really great things. She could sense that special sauce in something, which is an amazing skill to have. Uh, that's a, yeah, I think I think yeah, that's the yeah. skill we would all want, right? Right, but TV is not a put one product on you know per year business. It's a put ten things out, and and so unfortunately for those other nine, right? Uh, I mean, they still have to make the air. Some of them, yeah, and some of them will surprise you. You know, I think you can see things that are total surprises that have made it on the air, and like, oh, I didn't expect that was going to be the thing that kind of resonated. Well, like the show we're talking about today. I mean, but to that point, maybe maybe Elaine said. That's the one, but but maybe she didn't. Maybe what she was reacting to was, sorry, she was reacting to was your love and your passion for it and the fact that you wouldn't give up. I mean, going back to the point about fear, I always got the sense that the best bosses, you know, the best decision makers react to passion, right? And, and will ultimately give the people on their team the benefit of the doubt if they just say, this is the one. Not all. Yeah, I think, yes, I think that's super important. And then I can tell you, I could name off camera, or you know, off mic, I could name a few people that I've worked with who are have the same level of passion for everything. So it becomes noise. You're like, okay, well, now I don't know what to believe because you've said the same thing about that, you know, transactional pilot as you did about that docu-follow pilot. And you, they can't all be that good. Sure. So you have to be honest i think and you have to be discriminating in how you support something but it makes me sad though when you when you get into a spot now as a producer and you don't feel like the network is supporting you or that you don't have that that voice on the inside because we don't go to those meetings right to go and i know what those meetings are you know like and we don't there's so such a i mean the networks really don't put much money into marketing shows anymore it's sort of you know you might you'll get some on-air promos and, you know, maybe the press will pick up and do a few stories. But with Born This Way, it was sort of amazing. The press really didn't want to write about the show. Shocking. I, to this day, the New York Times has not written about it. The LA Times has not written a story about it. Um, so you know, which is so disappointing because you wish that the writers and the critics out there at the newspapers would, you know, try to expose their audience to something that's, that, that's giving them something that they haven't been gotten previously. So how do we fix it? How do we turn it around? This, you know, challenging relationship between producers and networks or, you know, executives. I mean, where it's not what I see across the table right here from the two of you. Obviously, not every show is going to, you know, win an Emmy or get millions of viewers. But, but that doesn't matter because when I was when I was in a situation to buy, it didn't matter anything that John had. There was a reason and a rationale for, you know, he also wasn't one of those producers that shoveled shit. 
You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like, oh, I've got 15 ideas. Here you go. It was never like that. He was a he was a strong producer who knew wherever I was at whatever place I was, this is something that would make sense for me. And he never, I gotta be honest, like he also never gave me bullshit if it if it wasn't the right thing at the right time. It was never like, oh, you never buy something from me. I have these people that would call me and be like, yeah, you never buy stuff from me. Yeah. Maybe I should take it to somebody else. And then you get into that position of like, then you get scared. Right. And you're like, oh my God, they're going to go down the hall to this other executive and maybe it'll be the greatest idea. It's just there's a lack of respect, I think, on on, on both sides. But there's Yeah, it's I like I look at the model and I and I I do feel it's a little broken. Um all the networks are pretty much doing it the same way. They have these, you know, development executives who take pitches and then um, they then have to pitch it up internally. It's very rare that, you know, I get to be in the room with the person who's actually going to be the person who's going to say yes to buying the show. Which so, is insane. And we, yeah, had, we, had a, exactly. we, we had a recent situation where the person who buys the show said to me, I want a show in this area. So we went off and we developed the show. And then it came the time to pitch it, and we couldn't get back in to see them. So we had to pitch it to the other executive. And it came back to us that they, you know, that it was pitched up, and no, they don't want it. They're not buying shows like that. And I'm going, <laughs> that's very strange. So then we go back to the decision maker. We just happened to have a time when, you know, we were with them. And we pitched the show out, and they bought it. And so something got lost in translation in the way that show was pitched up, even though we had a tape and we had a deck. You know, that junior exec could not convey, you know, the intrinsic idea and the passion behind it in a way that got the yes. So that's what's frustrating. So it drives me crazy. There was another executive who I'd worked with who ultimately got a network job. And one of the first things this exec said is, I really don't want to take pitches anymore. I want my other people to take the pitches. Okay. <laughs> and then they'll, they'll bring it to me. And I just think that's a mistake. I think you've got to... That's you the job. put yeah. yourself behind those walls. You have to be willing... If you're going to be in that job of saying yes to actually meet with the person who who created that idea. You know, you have to be very accessible in these jobs to both the producers and to your executives because they're going to have to translate what you want at some point or they shouldn't have jobs. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's definitely tough out there. I mean, do you find that this is the most challenging time from what you've seen in the industry? I mean, it's just gotten worse. I mean, uh, yeah, it's it's gotten worse, and there are some networks now that I don't pitch to because I just don't want to. It's not worth my time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. Yeah, I mean, I guess stepping back, then you know, what advice would you give John to your younger self? You know, if you were just starting out in the industry today. I have advice for you. Get out, run, run, head for the hills. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm, uh, uh, I'm very, you know, we have a lot of young development people here who have all this passion and who, you know, who, for them, this is the normal. Uh, I think it's harder on those of us who were involved in an earlier time when it was 
when when there were less layers. So I think, uh, yeah, I don't want to ruin it for them because um, you know they're they're doing fine. Um, I think it's hard, just harder on those of us who who, who experience who something different. Who had it better? Well, I never dreamt. You know, like I never ever thought this was even a possibility. So I wouldn't change. I wouldn't change anything. I think it's funny. I my husband will tell me all the time that I whitewash whatever the last few jobs have been. I'm like, remember? And he's like, yeah, I used to cry on Sunday nights before you go to work. And I'm like, I did. I don't remember that. Like there are challenges everywhere and there have been challenges everywhere. And, you know, it was the, oh, the great news is now streamers are buying and everything. And like, it's just another network, really. It's just trying to figure out how to negotiate another round of people and their decision-making and how their decision-making varies from cable networks and from broadcast networks and, you know, I think I'm fortunate enough that I saw a time when like reality was nothing and then it became something really big. And then streaming now is the next big thing and digital was going to be the big thing. I'm like, look, something will something will rise to the surface again. And like if you're passionate about programming, I was going to say television, but if you're passionate about telling stories like this and I think I think I think we are. I think that's why we do this. Like, you'll find a way to tell a story. And I find that, like, telling a story on a TV channel only helps me be better telling a story over the dinner table. So I think, like, if you like to tell stories, then just keep your head down. It'll all it'll all even out. And you are a great storyteller. I don't know about that. Thank you. Um, well, I would be remiss if we didn't discuss, you know, somebody who is very close to all three of us, and that's Mary Ellis. Um, you know, obviously, I was fortunate enough to work for both of you very early in my career. Uh, Drew, you know, you had many years with Mary Ellis. John, I mean, what do you think Mary Ellis would think of the climate today? Would she be grinding oh. or would she be up in San Francisco uh, doting on her granddaughters? The company has had so much success. You know, she died in, in 2004. Four, four. Four, yeah. Um, yeah. January of 2004, I think it was. And um, I would love her to see this campus. I would love her to just see the amazing amount of work that has continued to come out of this this little company. Um, I, I would love her to have, you know, been on stage for that Emmy. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's so part of me has regret that she didn't get to experience all that because I feel like so much of what we got was the groundwork she helped laid, sure. and none of us would have had these 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 achievements without that groundwork. And we still, at you know, at a at a string out meeting or a story meeting, you know, one of us will quote Mary Ellis, like Mary Ellis would say, well. If we were just in a room and we were writing this story ourselves, how would we write it? What would be the most compelling way to tell the story? Yeah. You know, and just, you know, uh, uh, just just the things that she would bring up. And, you know, I need to see two eyes. <laughs> eyes are the things that communicate. So, you know, so much of that has been ingrained into all of us. Um, but, yes, yeah, she I mean, the great thing about Mary Ellis is, is she she was she did not accept bullshit. So she would have just marched into some of these networks. I don't know, we might have lost our business because she would have told me. She probably wouldn't have been quite as diplomatic as I am. 
Drew, what do you think? Yeah. I, I, it's funny because I never got to work for her. I always worked with her and John when I was at the network. And I was terrified of her. I mean, terrified of her. But I, she was one of those people who, because of her history, I always wanted her to like me. So that was always a big thing. You were such a favorite of hers because you love soap operas. Exactly. Like she was the As World Turns producer, which was my show. I wa- I watched that since I was a kid. So I always loved that. But I loved, I learned everything that I know about telling stories from here, from John and Mary Ellis. And I was in a story meeting this morning and I was ripping grids apart basically because I'm like, guys, you're not telling the story. It's just, I get it. This action happened and this action happened, this, but you're not telling me what the story is and you're not giving me what their motivation. I mean, you don't even realize what you've learned sometimes, you know, until you really take a step back or ask that question. But I think about, you know, her her quotes were on the wall of the of the old building. Like, and those things, even though I never was directly reporting to her, those things affected me forever. And her eye, and I mean, I will also remember having an argument with her about a cast member for the Las Vegas, the first Las Vegas season. I'm like, well, I'm just going to tell you, as the network person, I do not like this person. And she was like, excuse me? And I was like, <laughs> and you know, I was getting a little older, a little more comfortable. I'm like, nope, I just think, I think she's terrible and I would never cast her. She was on the cast and she was unbelievable. I lost that battle. But I would, you know, you just, yeah, I'm like, oh, well, I'll, I'll take this one down. I'll fight her on this one. She always knew. She always knew the right casting thing to do. So, so much, so many great memories. <laughs> Scared memories. <laughs> Coming in nervous. Like, oh. I'm like, but on the network. Shouldn't I be yeah, okay? Yeah, well, no. she didn't really care. No, please. <laughs> it was a means to an end. A means to an end. Oh, oh, gosh. Well, thank you guys so much. Honestly, it's been really, really wonderful. I guess last question for you, John. But where would you rank me in your list of assistants. Oh, wow. No, You're right. one of, you know, I mean, there have been so many uh, assistants who have gone on to so much success, and you're always one of the ones I mentioned. Um, um, that is not an answer. Yeah, and, and we kept an your voice on the, uh, on, the, on the message machine for many years, uh, uh, partly uh, uh, because uh, uh. of that. And we didn't know how to take it off. Exactly. There was also that. <laughs> so there it is. The full story of Born This Way. Thanks to Greg Mercer for creating our show art and to Chris Carmichael for composing our music and for all things technical. You can find their respective work at gregorymercer.com and christophercarmichael.com. Thanks as well to our guests, John Murray and Drew Tappan, and to my wonderful family for all of their help and support. Also, please do subscribe to Exec Producer wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. And since collaboration is at the heart of this project, I'd love to hear from you, the listeners. Please reach out with what you liked, what you didn't like, and any ideas for future episodes. So thank you again for listening, and please come back next time. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Choose kind.